Hello there. Welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. My name is Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. My name is Justin. How you guys doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. How you doing over there? Doing very nice. Very, very nice. Can't complain. Uh, it rained today, and uh, then it didn't rain. And then it rained some more. And then it didn't rain again, and then the sun came out. But right. the sun was not any brighter than that bright red Milwaukee Tools hat that you were rocking, Justin. That's right. At least somebody was listening last episode, uh, mostly me, and got myself that official Milwaukee Tools hat. Um, you know, anybody listening out there, hit me up, uh, heavyholepodcast.com or Gmail, and uh, care of Justin, uh, you know, professional tool man. Uh, I think, all right, we, we might have to get legal on that. There's a guy named Tim calling us. Uh Tom, how you doing over there, buddy? I'm doing all right. I've been busy working, which is nice, because work goes in and out, and when I'm not doing it, I get a little stir-crazy, so it's always good to be on. I'm like a sawzall. I like that. Especially that. Yeah, Will, what's going on, man? How you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good, man. Uh, I'm all right, doing good, recuperating, chilling out here at uh, Smith Manor, uh, listening to some records, care of uh, Dark Symphonies. Uh, the Crypt imprint, repressing classic death metal albums that I'm going to be talking about uh, on a bonus episode. But I um, I ordered a little bit of vinyl here and there uh, the last few weeks. It's starting to trickle in, and I'm going to share that uh, with our listeners. We're going to do a little bonus episode, as, as I've been doing here. I've been, I've been cracking out a couple of bonus episodes every once in a while, uh, locked in the house. Making the best with your time that you got. Yeah. Use what you have. What about you guys, man? What's going on with your vinyl collections? Tom, I see it over your shoulder in the back there. You been spinning any records lately? Um, or, the, or, yeah. or are they just yeah, show you pieces? see these boxes I have on the floor of just vinyls coming in? Um, yeah, I've actually <laughs> I've been ordering some fun stuff. I'm waiting on a lot of stuff. I got the, not the last Rip to Shreds uh, EP. Not the, uh, the uh, full length that I was talking about. But I have a couple oil tanker LPs over here. And I got a bunch of stuff coming in the mail, so I'm psyched on that. Uh, I'll, I'll talk more about Sweet. it when I get it in. Very nice. Yeah, like I said, I'm gonna maybe we should, maybe we should all collaborate and do a bonus episode together about this. Uh, let's let's check in with Justin over there. Go Justin, what are you the doing? I'm doing. Uh, you know, I just uh, built naturally built a nice new record shelf. Uh, you know, for myself. So I've been categorizing. Uh, let's see. I was uh, spinning that that Ulthar, uh, Cosmovore. Just love that record. Yeah, good one. Um, I that the other day myself. Yeah, they uh they just released a new song for a, for a new record coming out, I guess later in the summer, and it's that yeah it sounds nice. Um, you know, di- digging through Discogs a little bit, trying to uh, fill in the Death Collection, which is fun, and then waiting on. Will you might like this, but uh, the 1997 release by the RB pop band Next, rated Next, uh, got that coming in on vinyl. Just listen to that too close, man. What was their smash hit single? I remember the name next. What did they do? Oh, uh, they did um they did a song Too Close. Oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Really dirty family barbecue song. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, extremely dirty pop hit. Yeah, I remember that song. Wow. You know, you're making it hard for me. That's Yeah. Oh boy. Let's uh let's not go there tonight. Guys, that's so a, bo- that a different shit. bonus episode, okay? Yeah, that's a diff- that's a bonus episode of a whole different flavor right there. Uh, but yeah, shout to next, um, getting it in in the pop charts with those lyrics, man. You know, <laughs> uh, and what what year were they around? Late nineties? Yeah, late nineties. I think this record was ninety seven. 
Okay, all right. Because I was gonna, I, I'm, I'm struggling with the segue here. It's wet out. I'm navigating the roads. Then the sun comes out and blinds me here. But we, we do have another group uh, from the '90s. Uh, um, we're gonna be talking to a man uh, who has been on every release by the band Atheist. Founding member Kelly Schaefer gonna be joining us today. Beautiful. Yeah, and uh, we're gonna talk about uh, all things uh, progressive classic death metal. Let's get him on the phone. Get him on the horn. Hey, Will, how's it going? Hey, Kelly, good. Uh, uh, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well, my friend. Thanks, man. And I got um, my two co-hosts here, uh, Tom. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Tom. And uh, good, Justin. Good, good. Justin, hey, what's good. up? Not too much, man. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. Yeah, like I always say, we want to be respectful of your time, man. Is it okay if we, uh, we jump in with the questions? Yeah, man. Yeah, let's, let's chat. Awesome, dude. Well, we always want to get a background on anyone we have on the show. So my question is always, are you from a particularly musical family? No, quite contrary. I, I have um, my mother and father both were not musical in any way. Um, my grandma, however, was on my father's side. So she would be the only she would be the only sort of link I have to music. And honestly, I didn't you know, I, I wasn't like singing when I was six or seven or doing or playing music or anything like that until I was in my, you know, probably, uh, well, I started playing guitar when I was 14, but definitely didn't sing or think about vocals of any kind until, uh, you know, later. So, yeah, definitely don't come from a uh, musical family, but uh, I guess you've got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, man. I, I don't really have much music in my family either, so I'm always interested to, uh, to know that. And are you originally from Florida? No, I'm from Cincinnati, but, but I, I um, pretty much grew up here. I mean, I've been here since I was eight years old in florida so yeah i mean for the, for the best part of my life uh you know i consider myself to ray i don't remember you know remember much of cincinnati there's not much to remember there <laughs> no disrespect to cincinnati people but i don't know it's just not a great town but i'm kind of really glad that i didn't have to grow up there it's just been you know a, a way different life for, for uh for me in general just you know being closer to the beach and everything i think it's been a really important part of my you know of who i am yeah, and obviously uh, being part of that uh, early Florida death metal scene, you were right there for all the action. Yeah, yeah it was good times, man. It was uh, an incredible era, and, and um, you know, it's, uh, it's weird how things like that happen when you're in it. You don't realize it until you look back on it. And uh, at the time, it just seemed like that was, you know, maybe what was every, every, happening everywhere. I mean, it didn't really seem like uh, it was exclusive to Tampa, but it was after a while, after probably three years of all the bands, all the great bands recorded at Morrison and it started to uh, become clear that this was a, you know, sort of a hotbed for a particular kind of aggressive music that wasn't really, you know, popular in, you know, in any way, except, you know, there was a different sort of uh, incarnation of it out west, you know, in, in San Francisco and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, there was heavy music, but Florida had a distinctively different sound, uh, you know, in the beginning, obviously because of Morrison, I think they were just one of the first studios to sort of capture, um, captured the, the double bass sound at a, at a high speed like really clearly so that became the goal to to uh to sort of have 
you know, if you're playing really, really fast, you want the bass drums to be super clear, and so that was kind of indicative of a, of a Tampa sound. So yeah, it was fun. Good times back then. Going to see Nasty Savage concerts. I mean, that that's what I remember the most about early Tampa was Nasty Savage was like this band that that everybody went to see. So if you went to to a club to see them, you would see the guys from Lord Angel, the guys from Obituary, the guys from you know, you know, Oz and Atheist, and all the other bands. It's, it's tons. Of, everybody would just go see them because they were just, you know, they were such a great example of, of the, you know, you don't have to play cover music. You can make your own music and make a record and and um, and, and get out of this town, you know, and get out and tour. And they were sort of an inspiration to all of us. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I remember those guys being really an important part of, of showing us how to do it, you know? Yeah, Nasty Savage has been coming up a lot on this podcast. We just talked to Terry Butler and uh, Mike Browning. Yeah, they, they both threw that name out there, too, you know? So it's cool. They were just, uh, they, you know, they had uh, such, you know, and that was like, the, that was before people would mosh around in circles, you know, before the hardcore sort of influence of, because that's where all that came from was, from from punk rock you know the circle pits and shit but in the beginning it was just like we would just pile on top of each other and just headbang our asses off and so it was really primal and and, and so much fun and and uh, and so I, I you know the, the early tampa days uh you know you go to the concert and then all of a sudden we're gonna make a demo and uh there was another concert at rocky point beach resort um back in the day and it was like right on the water and the whole hotel was rented out for uh, this festival called Rocky Point, uh, I, I forget what the hell they called it, Metal Massacre or something like that. But it was like Massacre, Nasty Savage, um, uh, everybody, and then all metalheads rented all the rooms in the hotel, and uh, it was just it was an early blowout. And Executioner play, which went on to become obituary, and so that was uh, just an early kind of different thing that you probably wouldn't see in Idaho, you know, yeah, uh, <laughs> or Tampa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm uh, fortunate to be a part of that for sure. I want to talk about you meeting uh, the guys that will go on to be in Ravage and Atheist, but uh, how old are you when you pick up a guitar? And is guitar your first 14. instrument? Yeah, guitar is my first instrument. I was 14, and then I uh, started the band when I was 16. And uh, okay. and then we just rolled off from there. And Steve Flynn was a guy that I was friends with in junior high. We're not really friends necessarily until later, but just acquaintances. And uh, he hung out with a, with a different group of people than I did. And... and, and um, so we didn't really meet up until after, I don't know, um, probably second year of high school. And, and we met outside of high school. So uh, we used to have these warehouses here in Florida, like sort of pull-up garages, like a storage place. I don't know, where, where are you guys? Where is this place? Oh, we're at a Long Island. Yeah. Oh, Long Island. Yeah, Fucking yeah. Long Island. That's us. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, Will's accent gives it away pretty hard. Yeah. I just, spent, you, uh... I just spent some time there. It's cool. It's a good place. We like it. I was just going to say, if you remember Atheist playing the Roxy many years ago, we're all in the same town, Huntington. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that's the only time we've ever played in Long Island. And that was like many, many years ago. And that was with Candlemass, wasn't it? Uh, that was a little bit before my time, uh, but a lot of my, my friends would probably know that uh, who are a few years older. I, I always famously tell people that it closed down like the year I got into underground music and stuff. But um, I, I, do, I do remember that only because... Uh, it was just, uh, it was, a, as I recall, it was a really good show, and plus I, I, uh, I had some friends that were there, and then now I have a lot of friends that live there now, so I always, um, always think about that place. So I do remember that show. It was a long ass time ago, though. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks. It's a, it's a parking lot now. Recently, before we went to South America, we rented an Airbnb in Long Island, and that's where we did our, our rehearsing before we went we went down there. So I like it there. It was very cool. Oh, did you guys have a studio out here? Did you practice at one of our local studios? Yeah, yeah, we rehearsed at. Um, Oh, gosh, 
forgive me guys in Long Island there. I forgot <laughs> the name curious. of the place, man. <laughs> but it was a rehearsal place. Like, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're sort of, there was other metal bands there and it was cool. And we got it. It was a small place, but we bashed it out and got it done. Sweet, man. Yeah. Uh, that, that's interesting to know, man. Um, so, uh, you talked a little bit about uh, Steve Flynn in the early days. Could you take us through where Rand Berkey and Roger Patterson come in, respectively? So, um, so myself and Steve, we meet up, uh, and sort of at that time, I, I don't know, if it, is anybody there as old as I am? Or are you guys all younger? Uh, I am 32. Uh, yeah, same. I'm 32 as well. I'm 38. Well, at the time, I, okay, so, well, at the time, like, Metallica was like this, so, so there was Maiden and there was Priest and there was Dio and there was, you know, all that kind of shit. And so there was this constituency of musicians that would play that kind of stuff, you know, the Dokken and, and, you know, they were all sort of guitar here at Van Halen. And then along comes Metallica, which was like this, you know, we were, I, I had the demo and I was like really onto them early on. And, and so everything changed with Metallica and there wasn't anybody in this town. Like we come from a very small beach town called Sarasota and uh, south of Tampa, about 50 miles. And it's really cool, quaint place and beautiful beaches, and but not a, not a hotbed for metal or musicians. And, um, you know, there's a lot of blues and Southern rock and shit like that around here. So Metallica was like this best kept secret. And so when, when I met Steve outside of there, he, he could play a Metallica song. And so I could play a Metallica song. So, if you can imagine that that bond happened immediately, I was like, "Fuck yes," you know. Like, and he didn't, you know. He it was just exciting to, to because nobody, everybody I played with, it stopped with like Judas Priest or or Maiden or something like that, which is fine. But Metallica was another world, man. And I needed somebody that could play Five Fire with Fire, or um, you know, or, or something like that, you know. And, and uh, so you could destroy. And, and so we were we were excited to play together. And so we got together with a uh, a singer named Steve Freed, who was kind of a uh, I don't know, kind of like Paul Diano asked. You know, and so we, we we started off playing cover songs. Really, we played like a song from Trouble. We played uh, Piranha from Exodus. We played, uh, um, you know, this was as as after we got together and sort of started Ravage. And uh, there was like twelve songs. Though. We played Die by the Sword from Slayer. So so we played all these songs that nobody really knew, but we were excited to be playing them. And um, you know, we were just really into Old Merciful Fate and stuff like. That. So it was an exciting time. And just still, again, we felt like you know we just had this little secret society of cool ass music and, and not many other people really in town were really uh, understanding it or playing it so everybody used to come to our warehouse and just kind of chuckle at us like Jesus you know what are you doing you know like uh, when we were just <laughs> you know you have to to put in perspective Crimson Glory if you're familiar with Crimson Glory uh, an amazing band incredible singer they practiced like a few doors down from us so they were, you know, they were signing with Atlantic Records and going to go out with Metallica, and, and we were just like fucking roughing it out down there playing weird shit. And uh, yeah, so it was just, um, it was just a, you know, weird. That Rand came into the picture after, like, we met at a party. We played a house party with no bass player. We had no bass player, so it was just myself, Steve, and the singer, and we kind of played house parties around town or wherever we could play. And uh, Rand rolled up one night and said, you know, I can play Black Magic. You know, Slayer. And so we were like, get the fuck out of here. And uh, he's like, I'm left-handed. So I was like, I thought, oh, well, I said, I'm left-handed too. Here, you can play my guitar. He goes, no, I play upside down. So I immediately thought he was full of shit. And, you know, so we found uh, somebody else that had a guitar at the house. And uh, he plugged that shit in and played that Slayer song perfectly. And we were like, oh, man, you're also in the Secret Society. <laughs> and uh, he was from L.A. And, 
you know, so he came with a lot of influence. He brought, you know, he brought a lot of other music that we didn't, you know, we hadn't really heard that much about because he was coming from California. And so, uh, so then he came into the mix and, uh, and then we played a, another show and Roger was some, Roger and Ronnie, they were twins. Roger had a twin brother and I had met them when we were selling newspapers when we were like 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. And, um, we, uh, competed against each other in a newspaper selling competition <laughs> and, uh, we didn't meet again until years later. And so, uh, the, him and his brother were at a show that we were playing and they were equally as shocked that we were playing these songs that nobody else knew about. And, uh, one thing led to another and he came over a couple of days later and then we just, we got rolling. And, uh, and then there was another point where we had to get rid of Rand and, uh, and we got a guy named Mark Schwartzberg and, um, he played on the, he played on the, on the Slate demo, I'm pretty sure. And then Rand came back. And so, um, you know, we had a tumultuous sort of fighting relationship. It was really a, a, a lot of arguing and, and all that stuff. But the music that came out of it was, you know, obviously really cool. But it was it was uh, a lot of arguing amongst, you know, especially between myself and Rand. You know, it was just a difficult path. But we, we got there, you know, we had to bash it out. We would practice six nights a week. And, and um, you know, and... But it was, a, you know, in a time where if you can think about atheists when you listen to it now, it seems not so normal or not so crazy. But in 1987, 88, it was super fucking weird. Atheist definitely holds up as one of those bands. E- even with all the crazy stuff we listen to, that's, it, it holds up because it's so influential Thank all you. over the place. And uh, it's funny that you say you guys were fighting all the time. Because if I heard that music, I'd be like, these guys are probably like the best friends. Well, you can, you know, also consider like, you know, it was an unorthodox songwriting process. So... You know, you have all these riffs, you know, probably 12 to 14 riffs in a song. So, you know, Rand would say things like, you know, you can't do that, man. You can't just you can't just put one riff. You can't just fly into another riff. And I'll be like, yes, you can. Watch. I'll do it. Quit <laughs> the stick, Steve. And we would play and we would just fight about shit like that. We would fight in front of people. People would be at our warehouse watching us rehearse. And we would just be going at it like, fuck you, man. You can. There are no, there are no riff police. They're going to come in here and arrest me if I play a 4-4 four, four against a 6-8 time signature. No one's going to give a shit. Um, you know what I mean? So, and, and it wasn't proven at that point that there was no technical metal like that, you know, back then. So all that weird shit was, um, you know, it was hard. And, and, you know, Ram was a brilliant, um, you know, player. And he was just kind of questioning, you know, I'm not trying to slight him completely, but it was just, you know, that he was a way better guitar player than me. And I think that that was his, his issue was like, oh man, you know, it has to be this mode, it has to go with that mode. And he was just way more theory-based and I was more organic. You know, I didn't, I didn't know any of the chord structures, but I was writing a lot of riffs. And, um, and he would just be like, no, that, that riff doesn't, you know, those two keys don't go together. And I'm like, great, exactly. That's why I don't want it to be predictable. <laughs> and so we'd fight about shit like that, you know. And, uh, but at the end, you know, it, it, it came out good. And, and, you know, I think Rand knows as he's older now and he looks back on it that, uh, you know, a, a lot of good came out of that fighting. Was there a, a reason why Rand did not take part in uh, Jupiter? Yeah, he uh, was in prison. It's a good reason. Uh, he, he took one direction in life, and we took another, man. And um, you know, I mean, I, I, not to throw the kid under the bus, but uh, it's, you know, it's pretty widely reported. He, you know, he, you can't go to Europe if you, you know, you have criminal offenses and stuff like that. So he had some issues, and we, you know, and, and he was going to be a part of it in the very beginning, and then he went and got himself in trouble. And uh, I try to tell people that out there, but I, I take a lot of a lot of slack from some people online, and they're like, "Ugh, fucking Kelly, fucking should have ran back in the band." You know what I mean? Like, it's like, listen, man, I, I you know, do you want to see the band? If you if you'd like to see the band, then I can't do it with people that can't get across the border. You know what I'm saying? So, and uh, I've tried on many occasions. It's a long story. They are very, very 
you know, we've known each 30 years we've known each other. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of, you know, sort of things that, that I'll spare you from. But, it's you know, it's a relationship that didn't function um, for atheists. And um, aside from the, you know, not being able to travel, uh, you know, the guys I play with now are so ridiculously good and so amazing to hang out with. And, you know, you really you can't be out with five people if everybody's fighting and mm-hmm. and you know what I mean it's uh, it was just you know Rand was uh, Rand was an interesting sort of individual and, and had his own way of going about things and I'm trying to be as kind as I can uh, and uh, yeah. you know and it just wasn't it wasn't conducive for touring you know what I mean and um, aside from the fact that he couldn't actually do it so uh, you know in the beginning when we when we, we went out and did the first um, you know the first reunion shows it was it, it was tough we didn't get you know, to the level of musicianship that I had, you know, that where I feel like we're at now. So I'm really excited about this new era and the new band because, um, you know, three of the guys that are in the band now are from Berkeley and they're just super, super killer. And uh, they play these songs in a way that, that you know, really honestly haven't, they haven't been played this way in a long time. And I think that, you know, it went really well out on the cattle tour. You know, the, the guitar players are playing everything really no for no, whereas in the beginning, um, you know, we, we were just happy to be out, like, you know, be out playing again. And, and so, um, you know, some, some, of the, some of the corners were cut in the early shows. I'm not proud of it, but I'll be honest about it, you know. Um, you know, we just, it's, it's hard shit to play. And it really kind of took a lot of years for, to get guitar, guitar players are so great now. They were not that good back, you know, even 20 years ago. Fucking really uh, an amazing jump in talent. And level of ability to to be able to play, you know, certainly our, our stuff, and then some of the weird stuff that's around now. I mean, um, seems very tame what we do compared to some of the weird shit, you know. So we're technical in, in kind of a different way, you know. Um, you know we, it's not about playing super super fast or a bunch of blast beats or or 280 beats per minute. It's more about sort of flowing in and out of different things, you know, that are really a lot harder than they probably. Um, yeah, it's compositionally technical. Yeah, yeah, it's just different. It's definitely a different kind of technical, but um, that was really great to play with Cattle out on the tour because they have, an, you know, an entirely younger, new audience of of extreme metal people that, you know, if you think about how long we were gone, 17 years the first time and then 10 years since Jupiter. So, you know, a, yeah. a, a, kid, yeah. who was, a kid who was 11 years old when Jupiter came out is now 21 or 22 years old and just discovering this extreme metal and along comes this band atheist and... Like, so a lot of people are like, who the fuck are you? Where did you guys come from? I've been here a long time, you know? So it was interesting to see how younger people sort of took it. And yeah, it should, not only, you know, a lie, in a live setting, it really it takes on a different level of muscle and, than it does on the records. Obviously the production, um, the sound of today's, you know, PA is like in a, in a live setting compared to 1991 production in the studio night and day. So these songs really muscle up a lot, um, you know, in a live setting. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah, absolutely, and that, that that goes to something I wanted to ask you too. Is uh, you you mentioned in the older days how um, kind of out there cynic was? Uh, I mean, how out there atheist was as a concept, uh, and later on, bands, you know, um, there would be like cynic and death, and then that, that, nowadays, like you said, there's all sorts of different bands. But atheist was so oddball um, back in the day. Did you feel like when you guys came back in 2006? that there was more acceptance of that because like death metal had grown up a few generations? No, oh, no question. I mean, it was night and day. That was the, the beauty of it all. It was like, where the fuck did all these people come? Like when we went to Wacken in Germany, that was the, kind of the first big show we did when we came back. It was unbelievable. Um, just, you know, we thought 
damn, you know, a bunch of old school dudes would come see us. No one remembers of the R.I., but it was all young young kids that had just rediscovered, that had discovered atheists, I guess, just on the internet and and um, and just through other means. And and uh, it was really super inspiring. And I think that's what. And for the first three years, we were just like, oh, well, we'll play a few more shows, and we'll play a few more shows. And it was just there was no thought of even doing a new record. In my eyes, I was just like, there's no way we're gonna be able to find kids to be able to play, you know. Uh, this you know this kind of stuff and, and, and capture the same thing I don't want to ruin our, our legacy and um, but man you get over there and you realize that yeah everything that you know this, this genre really grew up a lot and it progressed and it it evolved and um, and that's a you know an amazing thing that that uh, you know we didn't anticipate so um, yeah and the, and the acceptance and and just you know meeting a lot of today's you know at, well when I say today back then 2005 2006 bands that were doing well then that I was a fan of um, we're aware of us, bands like, you know, Gojira, and, you know, we, it's, you know, we just didn't think that anybody had remembered. You know, when you go away for 17 fucking years, it's like, uh, you know, it's a long time to, to, to go away, so you don't anticipate everybody. Yeah. That's an entire generation, so to speak, so so it's nice, man. Nice to, to have made some music that, that stood the test of time, you know? Yeah, and, and you you talked a lot about um, the, the some of the newer members of the lineup who are younger, um, but also... Could you maybe talk about uh, Steve Flynn's relationship with the band, and uh, also is Tony uh, Choi still working with the band in any capacity as well? Uh, Tony Choi's not. He's our buddy. He's our friend. Uh, but no, we've, we've this lineup. Uh, Yoav Ruiz uh, is our, our bass player, and um, Danny Martinez guitar, Chris Martin guitar, and Anthony Medaglia is um, our touring drummer. Now the relationship with Steve is, is you know, me and Steve. You know, we we work on these albums together, and um, Steve doesn't he can't really tour as much. He has a, a pretty important job and and marketing and big family, and um, you know it's just uh, he likes to do select shows. Maybe he'll do you know five to seven shows on a tour if possible if he can get away. But uh, you know we as a band, you know me and him just agreed that it would be great for the band to get out and play and keep you know keep the music alive and everything. And uh, so we agreed that it would be great to pull in a, a touring drummer if we could find the right right kid and uh so together we found you know anthony and he's just um he's just been amazing and and uh so you know we we uh, whenever steve can tour that's great but he you know again he, he'll never do 25 shows in a row he can't do it so you know we need to we need to get out and play so uh this is the perfect solution so it's kind of hard to explain to people but i mean this is absolutely not you know steve is very much uh you know me and steve are very much atheists still and but having these new guys is like having, you know, just people look at it like painters, you know, like now we just got these amazing new paintbrushes and these new colors and, and um, you know, we're, we're always going to be maintaining, you know, sort of an atheist template. So, um, you know, and we always did anyway, me and Steve and, um, you know, Roger, Roger had some incredible, Roger was an incredible riff writer and, um, and Ram was a, a great sort of a, a, a harmonically, um, interesting accompanying guitar player, but, but neither were like total songwriters. Like neither one of them would say, "Look, I wrote this whole song." Um, you know what I mean? And so me and Steve would always just kind of take these, you know, these the amazing things that Roger and Rand would do, and then sew them together in this great blanket. And um, and so we've continued to do that over the years. And so I think that's what's enabled us to still, you know, when you listen to Jupiter, it sounds like an atheist record. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it's yeah. just with better production. You know, and. Um, so you know, uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's very few bands from back in the day that still have the same lineup. I can't think of hardly any that have 
you know what I mean, the same guys that they started with. Oh, no. So fans just kind of got to get got to kind of get over that a little bit. You know, just got to understand that. Um, just like you know, great football organizations. You know what I mean. And, you have a coach who brings in new people. You got to trust the coach to bring in the new people and maintain the, the integrity of that football team. It's a bad analogy, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I agree. It's, so. it's exa- and also we're from Long Island. We're from the land of suffocation, internal bleeding, pyrexia, where a lot of these yeah. legacy acts have kind of turned into. It's like a sports team that you follow, uh, and you said you you trust the um, the franchise to to uh, stay true to the legacy. Yeah, everybody team. trusts everybody trusts Terrence to to uh, maintain the level of suffocation that everybody's become accustomed to, and Terrence has done that and some. And he's raised that level, and, and I feel like, um, and I feel like we have as well, man. I feel like going away for 17 years and coming back and doing Jupiter. Steve Flynn's performance on that record is fucking stunning, and this is a guy that put his sticks down for 14 of those years, like did not play for 14 years, picked up the drums again in three years, and fucking laid that shit out on Jupiter. And I just think that you know that's incredible, you know. And uh, so I'm super proud of him and proud of that performance. And you know, we it was it was tough to come back. Everybody wanted to take a shot, and, and American writers were, were more guilty of it than Europeans. Europeans were just happy to sort of have us back, and they appreciate the, the fact that, no, it's not going to sound like 1991 more sound, and, and why would we want it to? You know, so a lot of the slack comes with, oh, man, you know, modern production ruins it. <sighs> you know, nonsense. You know, why? because it's, the guitars sound better, and because you can hear everything clearer. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me, but purists are purists, and they have their, you know, their reasons for... You know, for wanting to, you know, what are we supposed to do? Go in with a 16-track, you know, go back to the, you know, uh, the tape. And, and, you know, I mean, it's just uh, people just, it's just funny. It's tough being a musician, man, because it's just so judgmental. And um, people just, everybody's got an opinion. There's really not a lot of jobs you do where everybody has an opinion. Like, you know, look, we made a record. And everybody goes, well, everybody immediately shares their opinion about it. If you build houses, not everybody, you know, really kind of lays out their opinion on it. Build houses. I don't know. It's a (laughs) a strange thing to be ridiculed your whole life. Not ridiculed, but just judged. You know what I mean? Especially by people that uh, don't make music. Well, especially in death metal and and playing something that's uh, for a number of years was fairly abstract, even to death metal fans. Um, And I asked that before to kind of maybe clear up misconception, because as you said, atheists came back um, to a whole new generation, and it's even been more generations uh, since you came back and put out Jupiter. Um, So just just to clear up any misconception that people might have, you still play guitar and contribute to the writing of the guitar and the tracking of the guitar. You just don't play live because of your tendinitis, right? Correct. Yeah, I I still very much write. You know, majority of the guitar stuff, and uh, you know, um, I can play sitting down all day. It's just stand, as soon as I stand up, my thumb just goes to sleep, and uh, it becomes really, really difficult. And uh, definitely playing and singing would be completely out. And so, yeah, I had to, I had to choose one or the other. And I certainly didn't want to sit down on stage and and sit on a stool. You know, and I, I, you know, I don't need the, you know, I don't need that typical guitar guy accolade. Like, you know, I don't need that attention. <laughs> I'd much rather have some you know young badass dude that's way better than me on guitar play that shit. You know, I mean, uh, I'm 51 years old, man. I don't have any problem with 25 year old kid smoking me. You know what I mean? I wrote that shit, so it's, it's cool. You know, I mean, I'm not. You know what I mean? It's like a, there's, there's still some guys uh, they're just still kind of hanging on to that, and like they have to be there. And you know, I didn't need to play guitar. At the end of the day, I, I want my team to be good. You know what I mean? I want my band to be good. I want the music to be 
as close to how we recorded as possible. And the best thing to do is to have somebody better than me play those, you know, guitar parts. If I if I have to limp through it because my thumb hurts so bad, then that's stupid. You know what I mean? I, I'll put the guitar down and just run around and sing. And uh, so it's um, you know it's been that way since '93, really. But yeah, that's uh, it's one of those. One of those um, things about atheists that I see online all the time, like uh, I see a lot of different variations of it, where I, I have arthritis, or I have uh, I'm not able to play guitar anymore at all, and it's like, geez, internet is fucking brutal. <laughs> so much misinformation, you know. <laughs> they add in the comment section. That's what they always say, man. Uh, it's, it's good advice, man. Um, and and you know, I just not not to dwell. Um, on the past, but the last thing I really want to ask you about um, older lineups of the band is uh, to respectfully, um, Roger Patterson, we know, passed away uh, in 1991 in a, in a car accident. Maybe if you could just speak to uh, what he was like to work with and what sort of person that was for uh, the people who are great fans of, of his work with the band. And also, he contributed to the writing of Unquestionable Presence in certain respects, too. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, he was my best friend, man. We we uh, we had an apartment together before we died, before we went on that tour. And um, Roger was like a super care. He was like just a natural talent. Um, he was kind of, um, you know, and I and I say this, I love him to pieces, but he was kind of a fuck up. He lived with his grandparents, and he 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 liked to, you know, smoke cigarettes and smoke weed and play bass, and that's it. He wasn't trying to get a job. He wasn't trying to, you know, he was all he wanted to do was just do that. And, so on that level, he was kind of a slacker, but, but uh, you know, we all kind of were, you know, I mean, except for Steve. Steve was very college-minded, but uh, but he, he was super carefree, but just had his natural ability, like, just in super humble, like, there's not a, not a, an ounce of arrogance in that kid, and, and um, just, you know, was always super supportive. Of, he, was a, he was the guy that, you know, got the shirts from the opening bands. And, um, you know, it was just, a, he would, he, if he was still around today, he would just be, be loved you know, by all because he was just a, a just a really kind person and um, you know always bumming smokes and and uh, just a, you know just a, you couldn't help but love him you know and uh, it just sucked yeah. you know we we just done that whole tour and uh, everything was really great because we could you know come home and do a European tour and we had to hurry up and get this van back from California and try to do it in two and a half days instead of three and a half days and so our driver got really tired and only crashed and we lost him so. Uh, Steve had flown back. He was on that tour and had saved part of his per diem money to fly home. <laughs> he was smart, and uh, so he wasn't in the vehicle. Thankfully, because he would have been sitting right next to Roger, and you know, potentially we would have lost one of the greatest metal rhythm sections ever, you know, in one swoop. And uh, but yeah, just a you know, yeah. tremendously kind, humble, badass motherfucker. Just not because he's gone, or not because he was our bass player. Just like unbelievable finger strength like he had a ton of uh, power when he played and, and um, he didn't even ever have a chance to have really great gear like the gear that's around today so his, his you know his bass lines are just so aggressive and, and so interesting and, and he would he would bring in these riffs that would take us all day to sit and try to figure out and really I tell the story a lot that, that you know the way we became technical is because Roger's riffs were so hard to play that uh, I was like I had to kind of orchestrate around them so he would play like I deny, for instance. You know, he comes in, and I was like, <laughs> you know, I like wrote these other notes that went around it, and I was like, fuck, I can't play that with my with a pick, dude. I, you know, you're doing things with your fingers that aren't possible with a pick. So uh, it, it created this template for us, and and, uh, and so that started to be the thing. Like he would come up with this weird riff, and we would play something around it. 
and then Steve would play something completely different. Uh, and then before we knew it, everybody was playing something different. And then we liked that. And then we were like, yeah, that's our, that's our thing. And then we would try to make things more interesting and more difficult while all playing different shit. And, and the whole goal was to meet up two or three times during the song. You know what I mean? So there's all this crazy shit going on and bam, everybody comes and hits the same spot for a minute. And then it's like, oh shit, shit, shit. And then you move on to something sort of crazy again. You know, and again, it seems normal today, but in, you know, in the midst of, you know, early, late 80s and early 90s music, it was, it was, it was out there. It was weird. And so a lot of times people couldn't remember what they just heard. And so that, that was one of the reasons why people didn't like us. They just, you know, in a live setting, if you're seeing us for the first time, you're just really confused. You know, if you've never heard these records and you're listening to the songs, like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Like, they don't even play anything, you know, enough times for us to mosh. <laughs> so it became, you know, that, and that's what it was about. It was a little more knuckle dragging back then where it was just about that moment so they could mosh around, you know. And there were, and we would never repeat things, you know, more than six to eight times. And so everybody would get very confused. We would go from a total mosh part to a total weird jazz part. And that would just piss people off. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, part of us liked it, but, you know, it was also kind of disheartening to have shit thrown at you on stage and, and, uh, and have people, you know, yeah, you fucking suck. You know, so uh, I think that was one of the reasons why Steve was like, fuck this, I'm going to go to college. <laughs> and he split and, and then, uh, you know, and then we, we made the Elements record and, um, and then, you know, obviously disappeared for 17 years. So, yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough back then just being weird, but, uh, you know, it's nice now. I'm glad we stuck it out and I'm glad that it, it you know, it stood the test of time and, and we have this great opportunity to come back now and, and play these songs better than they've ever been played. Just because, you know, the level of, of equipment and the level of sound that's available in 2019, 2020, is just so far beyond what, you know, how it was back in the day. So it's just really fun to play this music and have it sound so fucking, you know, clear and the way we always dreamed it would sound, you know, great guitar sounds, great, you know, clear kick drums, uh, you know, big deal big change from, from 1988 89 <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean you you mentioned your tour with cattle decapitation just just recently um what what are some of the big changes you've noticed uh coming back now in in 2019 2020 and even before that with like sound engineering live and and venues i mean you were right there at the start of death metal when it was more frowned upon and people didn't know how to produce it yeah, they didn't. And, um, you know, the goal was always to find a, a, you know, a sound person that had a clue and how to capture, you know, that, that speed of, of double bass and it's even faster now. So, you know, what, uh, it's night and day, you know, I mean, the consoles that are used now, you know, when you do a sound check, if you're, if you're a direct support for a headliner, you can do your sound check and, and, and the, the fucking board remembers it. You know, the, that was just an impossibility back then. And so, you know, all these yeah. memory sets, you know, so so when our sound guy jumps back up, they're going to, he's going to press a button and then all the faders go exactly where it was when we, when we did our sound check. And so that's a, an amazing addition to, uh, you know, to playing live and, and, and really kind of, you know, because you spend 30 minutes sound checking, you get everything sounding great. And then, and then another guy comes and runs sound for the opening band and he fucking moves it all around. And now what was the point? You know, why did we do the sound check? So now it's, it's you know, I think that alone is just one of the great things. And, and obviously the way, um, the way bass is sort of carried in, in venues these days, uh, the, the, the quality of speakers and full range sound compared to back then, I think uh, really makes a big difference in a large room now. Uh, it's not as boomy and 
it's crazy and uh yeah, it's just uh it's good technology you know um is, is you know it's made it easier to listen to this kind of music even for people that find it difficult to listen to to begin with at least the quality of the production is you, know, you can really hear drum sound unbelievable now it's incredible so uh yeah yeah especially in the, in the live, live setting well um <laughs> On, on that note, I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, direct support bands, touring packages. Where do you see death metal going? And, and what do you think of some of the younger generation of death metal that's out there now? Um, I, 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 you know, I'm of the belief that I just, you know, I love speed and I, I just, but I don't think anybody can go any faster. So, like, so uh, my thing is songwriting, you know? So one thing that's left sort of find a way to make this madness catchy you know um find a way to make the movie seven um understandable you know what i mean like that's an odd analogy but you know i mean when you see an, a, a weird movie and you see it enough and it makes you know if you watch it 12 times in a row it's a um you know it, it becomes a little you know if you could find a way to make music you know what am i trying to say just uh you know not uh, yeah I just, I just think I, don't, I can't imagine anybody being any heavier than Primitive Man, <laughs> and I can't imagine anybody being faster than any faster than you know uh, some of these bands that you know well over two eighty to three twenty beats per minute. So, so now what? How do we how do we move into the next ten years? Well, to me, songwriting makes perfect sense. You know, we get let's take all this chaos and find a way to make it catchy, not in a cheesy way. Then a you know in itself that's a, that's a task. And um, and really kind of you know create some some great songs and um, you know I found that on Jupiter one of the things that I, I'm kind of proud of on that record is that there's a lot of chaos going on underneath me there's a lot of catchy vocal things you know Tortoise the Titan uh, Second the Sun there's, there's things to remember vocally that you know that aren't typically you know um, a part of this extreme metal you know you typically don't find yourself humming vocal melodies all the time and I and, and it, you know, maybe I'm too close to it, maybe I'm wrong, but I just feel like there was an element that we touched on with that record that I really want to touch on, you know, moving forward. And uh, I'd love to see, um, I'd love to see it just not become so so chaotic that it's a, a parody of itself. You know, I mean, um, everybody's just really incredible. I, 25 years ago, people would ask me, "Where do you see this music going?" And I would always say, "Man, everybody's got to learn how to play. Got to learn how to play. <laughs> learn how to tune." You know, and uh, and they did. And, um, you know, and, and I'm just so proud of the young generation of musicians. They're fucking stunners, man. And, and they're just so good. And, and uh, so, so, you know, with that ability, you look at a guy like Yngwie Malmsteen. Like, Yngwie is an incredible guitar player. Just ridiculous. It's hard to find anybody that's, you know, find, find anything he can't do. But he has a really hard time writing songs, doesn't he? You know, <laughs> he's not known as a great songwriter, but he's a ridiculous guitar player. So I would say the same thing to the young, the young extreme metalers, man. Try to find a way to be chaotic, um, cohesively, you know, and in, in, in a way that people can get in and out in four minutes and remember what they just heard, you know. Um, that's my short answer on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, something I, you know, I don't know if um, there might be some uh, more uh, like atheist fans that don't realize you have uh, experience in the music industry. Uh, beyond atheists, um, oh, yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't it like around the, the 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 time that Elements was released, you started your band Neurotica, right? Yeah, we had a good run with that band, and um, I just you know I wanted to 
wanted to sing. You know, I wanted to do some different shit. I wanted to write songs that, um, you know, that maybe people would remember. Um, you know, I always loved old classic bands like Aerosmith and stuff like that. It'd kind of be great to, to have a band that, you know, I'd love to write a song like Dream On, you know, and have have it stick around for, for decades. And so that was the, the goal, you know, and um, that was a lot of fun, man. We, we went did OzFest in 2002 and uh, signed with Vince McMahon and the WWE. Um, yeah, they mm-hmm. they started they started a label called SmackDown Records, and we were the first band signed to that label, and um, <clears throat> that was a great that was a great run. Yeah, and got um, produced and did it all up at the Hit Factory in New York, and um, just had a lot of really great runs with it. But it's just it, it came out that record came that was a sort of a muscle up rock record, you know. I mean, um, like a almost a heavier version of Alice in Chains in a way, and um, you know, at the time ninety eight through two thousand two when we were at our peak it was all about rap rock and biscuit fucking all that kind of stuff it was just horrible timing uh, for that band but it was just you know I'm super proud of that band and hopefully people will go check out those records uh, there's I think three of them um, but uh, yeah and then I um, got done with that and uh, almost found myself in Velvet Revolver which was a, a weird scenario yeah tell us about that whole process I had just gotten done with Neurotic and I guess it was just over and we just came to terms with it and said alright um, and I was kind of like shuffling around trying to find it. I didn't even own an atheist record that, at that point I had to try to buy one used online and so in the middle of doing that I just kind of saw I saw this thing on the news or online on the news about uh, Slash looking for a, a real rock singer and there are no real rock singers around anymore it was the headline of the story and I was like you know, fuck that. So I called my manager. I was like, hey, man, can we send him a neurotic album? And my manager kind of busted my balls. I was like, dude, he's in L.A. He's going to have a ton of people. And I said, I know, man, but, you know, whatever. You never know. And uh, so I had remembered that our publicist with Neurotica was used to be Slash's publicist. So when my manager kind of blew me off on it, basically, uh, and I, I called her and she was like, I'll fucking send it to him right away. And three days later, Slash called me on the phone and, uh, that was it. I was talking off. I went in, they sent me some songs, and I went in and wrote some, some vocals to it, sent it back. They flew me to L.A., and uh, I found myself in a room with fucking Guns and Kelly. It was great. I was like, holy shit, what am I doing here? They didn't know anything about my death metal past or anything. It was really super covert operation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was just, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean I, it was just surreal, you know, I mean, because I, I don't come from that scene, but I appreciate, you know, the you know, the level of Guns N' Roses, it was just still, you know, he slash pulls up in a drag and gets out, he's like a cartoon character. Like, oh, I'm like, how, how did I end up here as, death, as a death metal kid, you know what I mean? And uh, so then I go and I, you know, rehearse and there's cameras and they're recording it and it's just a whole different vibe than anything I've ever been involved in. And so, um, yeah, so I left, you know, like that, I stayed that whole weekend, they asked me to stay after I did my audition, they were like, I fucked up great. And, well, well, um, let's get together get on Monday can you stay over the weekend and so I didn't you know my manager who initially had chuckled it all off whenever I told him Slash called me uh, he paid for me to go out to <laughs> he paid for my <laughs> hotel and everything and uh, he was he was stoked you know but it was just you know one of those things I've always believed that like you know everybody shits and wipes their ass the same it doesn't really you know what I mean everybody man to man and, and you know and, uh, ears are ears and if you if you play for somebody even though they're a you know Brian Johnson from ACDC. I mean, he's the guy that got us really going with Neurotica. Like, he saw us playing in a club in front of 16 people and said, oh, man, you know, 
was bought us around the beers and and then two days later uh, I got a call from that guy that manager guy that I'm talking about and um, asked for a demo and the next thing you know we're in the fucking studio and I'm singing and I'm looking through the glass and there's fucking Brian Johnson I'm like holy shit you know you just never you know they just good is good you know if you're good you you know people uh, people are, are cool with it so you don't really it doesn't really matter whether you come from a small town or no matter where you come from as long as you perform on a New York California European level you know what I mean like as long as you get to that level uh, to, to match you know what everybody else is doing out there then people like Slash and Brian Johnson will you know will recognize it and uh, so anybody coming up don't let anybody talk you out of you know of, of uh, having confidence you know and because um, you, you know these, these people are just you know they're just looking for good talent and in LA you can imagine Slash probably had a lot at his disposal but he probably had a lot of people that came and tried to sound like Axel or came and tried to sound like what they thought he wanted rather than just being themselves and uh so, you know, I can't blame them for going with Scott Weiland. Uh, you know, he had sold four million records. and But, I mean, the whole experience for me was great. You know, just um, it was the best audition that I never got. You know, um, yeah. it worked out great for me. But then I went on to do the uh, the atheist thing and it worked out great. Because it would have been really confusing. It would have been a weird story had I joined the band and then the story would have come out that I come from, you know, this extreme death metal world. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have been a great PR thing for Velvet Revolver, so... <laughs> All cool, man. It was a great experience. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> really nice guys, though, man. Very humble. And, and it was a great experience on that level also that, you know, they, they were very kind. We went out to eat and hung out. And they were just, you know, just like everybody else. You know what I mean? I, I find that local musicians and, and, and people that are sort of struggling to come up usually have the biggest attitudes. And the people that are the most famous are the coolest. You know, um, that's been my experience in, in the music business. Rarely have I had, you know, have I been afraid to meet my idols, so to speak. You know, they've always, they've never let me down. But, you know, some some guy on an opening band out on a, on a tour somewhere, that, on a side band bill, has the attitude of a fucking, you know, <laughs> a jerk. So, uh, you know, people's egos are always misplaced. But Slash and all those guys were fantastic. What's that? People think that sells, having an attitude, you know. So, uh. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I guess there is an element of people that think that they're supposed to be that way. I'm supposed to act like a jerk. and uh, But, you know, in, in reality, all the greatest artists are the super kind, and usually, you know what I mean? Uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, and, and those, that's what life's about, experience, you know what I mean? So what that I failed? So what that I didn't get the gig? Still had, a, you know, still had a story to tell my kids, and... Um, yeah, you know what I mean? That's what life's about. It's about experience. And, you know, it's not about money necessarily. Money just gets you that experience. You know, but when you lay in your hospital bed and you're, you know, taking your last breath, you're you're, you're, you're thinking about the things that you've done, not how much money's in your wallet, <laughs> you know, or how much money's in your bank. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm a junkie when it comes to trying to, you know, experience things and, and fit myself into an odd hole, you know, uh, that I shouldn't be in, and I like that, you know, both musically and socially, you know, to just try to try to experience different things, you know, I mean, uh, you'll probably never catch me doing a country band, that'll be one one hole I'll never try to fit in, I'm not a country music fan in any way, so there's no way I'll do, but I would, I would try out pretty much anything else, though, I man, but I can't, I can't understand country music, it's confusing to me. Is, <laughs> is there, there's, there's already uh there's already one old school death metal guy out there. Oh out. yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, yes, I, there I, is. I, yes. You know what though, man? I, I, you know, me and David, uh, 
you know, he, he back in the day, you know, he's a different guy than he was um, back in the day. You know, he was so very competitive back in the late '80s and early '90s. It was really tough. And uh, but I don't know. I like I like his outlaw country shit. I think it's kind of cool, man. I think there's something kind of metal about it in, in a weird way. I don't see that as country. Like I see that as kind of. I don't know. It's like uh, well, you know, it's outlaw country. So it's, yeah, dark country. He's got the you know, he's got the you know, he's got the got the boys for it. So he's got that you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's a stretch for him. I I, I kind of saw that one coming, but uh, I can see where. You know, metalheads have a, have a problem with that because I, I definitely can't stand country. But I, I don't know. Again, I don't. I don't. It doesn't really come off as, as that kind of country to me. Kind of yeah, like, uh, yeah, yeah. More, know, yeah, like more, definitely more from his his world uh, of, of yeah. country. His take. That guy wins, up. man. That guy wins at everything he does. You know, so yeah. like him or not, like he wins. You know, and uh, I, I, I admire it. Very cool. Guys, who are you talking about? I'm an idiot. Dave Vincent. Okay. Dave Vincent. Yeah. Well, for those who don't know, so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking to everybody listening. It's like, who the hell are they talking about? <laughs> Dave Vincent of I Am Morbid and, and formerly of uh, Morbid Angel um, famously did a, uh, I guess, what, what you would call a country-flavored uh, venture. Um, yeah. Musically yeah, you know, it's like a, it's like a you know, a, a whiskey-soaked Johnny Cash kind of modern thing you know and it was pretty cool man you know it, was, uh, it took a lot of balls it's got a lot of balls it takes also a lot of balls just to come out and, and, and do I am morbid <laughs> and, yeah. and succeed yeah. at it but you know what I mean like you know they were they, you know, they're doing great things and people are just as as happy seeing that band as they are morbid angel honestly and maybe in some instances different I mean I, I, I see them doing really really well and um, yeah, I mean good for that dude man he's he's a good businessman he's good at marketing Absolutely. himself he's got a Look out, you know, and uh, doing good things, man. He's, he's evolving, you know, and that's that's what everybody needs to do. Gotta move forward. And speaking of good businessmen, one thing um, be- before we wrap up, because we do want to be respectful of your time, but one thing I wanted to ask you about before that you mentioned, uh, you said you signed to Vince McMahon. Did you actually deal with Vince McMahon or like other entities oh, yeah. in the office that, that we might know as oh. pro wrestling fans? Oh, I'll leave you with a great story. I so they signed us and. Uh, um, we went, I remember, I'll never forget it, we went to Dean Guitars and we were getting endorsed by Dean, so they gave us all guitars, we were all excited, we rode back from Tampa with our brand new guitars and we're all fucking stoked and we get a phone call and it's, oh, um, now, so when they started this label, they hired a guy named Ron McCarroll from Sony and they hired a guy named Benji Gordon from Columbia and so they had the right infrastructure right out of the gate, they had these amazing guys that are going to know how to run this label. So, you know, we're about a month and a half into this deal, we're working on everything, the record's done, everything's ready to go. All of a sudden, Jim Johnson, the guy that makes our theme music, um, he's, he's friends with yeah. uh, Vince for, for many years. We know Jim Johnson on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Qu- quick one for you, Kelly. Jim Johnson hates me. Yeah, he's not a big fan of me either. <laughs> <laughs> I took his job. I was, wow, I was one of the CFOs really? guys. Yeah, I wrote a bunch of the WWE That's music. fucking great. Well, you're going you're gonna to love this story. I get the call that he says, um, all right, so listen, guys, uh, you're, we're going to hold off on putting the record out. We're going to bring you up here to make some music with Jim. Jim's going to be the new president of the label. <laughs> he feels like he should be the president of the label. So Ron McCarroll from Sony resigns, and Benji Gordon stays on from Columbia. And we're just like, what? This, this is crazy. Why would we go? This guy's never been in a band, never made a record. He makes theme music for a living. Why? This is what they, they'd already screwed up the XFL. And so in my eyes, I was like, God damn it, they're going to mess this up too. Not on my watch. So I wrote this letter to Vince McMahon. And I was like, 
you know, I said, I haven't eaten shit and smiling for my whole career. I said, uh, you know, you bought and paid for a rock and roll band, and that's what we are. I said, you wouldn't ask the big show to go take judo lessons from some karate guy, you know I mean? Like, so why are you asking me to go in and make music with this guy that makes jingles for a living? That's a good point. And so, uh, I, and I went in, and it was very colorful, and it, it pissed him off, and he flew us to Connecticut. And uh, <laughs> next thing you know, I'm sitting in the boardroom, and in walks Shane, Vince, Linda, uh, Stephanie and um, this is before Triple H got involved Family and um, I forget the, uh, and uh, yeah and they're and I think they're a lawyer and so he comes in you know and the first thing out of his mouth he goes, and there was a couple of other members of the band with me and our manager and he's like what a molly looking crew so then Jim comes in and sits down in a leather jacket you know mm. like okay, he's so fucking metal and uh, so I, yeah. I proceed to tell Vince McMahon to his face and in front of Jim Johnson like I, you know, this man makes jingles. You have a $3 million studio that you, you bought for this guy. Because they showed us the studio. It was amazing. It was ridiculous. Oh, yeah, I've been $3 there. Million dollars it's been got knocked all, down. You know, oh, really? Yeah, they so got rid of it. So he, uh, I was like, and do you know that he, you know, he's bringing in these bands, and I said he's collecting 50% publishing that you don't know anything about. I bet you're not getting any of that money. Then this is a different industry. I said, you you wouldn't let somebody on the outside come in and do this to your business, right? You know, and I, why, why would you want us to come and do And the only reason he wants to do this is because he wants to take half of our publishing, and that's not happening. It's ridiculous. And uh, he sat back in his chair, and he was pissed about the publishing thing because like, he didn't know about that. He didn't know that, you know, Cypress Hill coming in, making theme music, Jim Johnson's putting his name on it as, as a writer, 60%, collecting a lot of money on those. I mean, that, those forcible entry records were selling a million copies. Man. I bought three of them. I know, they definitely were. They were selling. He was, I mean, I, I got. I remember getting paid back then on those records. It was really good. We had one song on it. But I'm so so. He had this great little thing going on, and that he kind of he didn't count on me coming up and blowing the lid off of it. And I don't know how it ended up, but I don't think he's there anymore. But I, but I, you know, Vince was like, "All right, we're putting the record out." So then they send me over to Kevin Dunn. Do you know who Kevin Dunn is? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. I can't believe that my pro wrestling fandom and my metal fandom are coming together. Really. Thank you. This is yeah, this is, this is, this is dream so right they, they take us in a golf cart and take it over to Kevin Dunn, and he opens the door. Now Vince has already called him and said, "All right, the record's back on again. We're putting it out." Um, but mind you, now Ron McCarroll's gone, so we're still dealing with Jim Johnson, the president of the label. Has no clue, no radio infrastructure knowledge, nothing. Um, so we're not sure really what's going on. But so he sends it over to Kevin Dunn. Kevin Dunn opens the door, and he's—I don't know—he just—he struck me as this rat-faced little dude. Just, <laughs> he was like, I—I I, I was already in a mood, and and he goes, uh, uh, you know, I just got a call from Vince, and this is literally what I just got a call from Vince, and uh, you know, he said we're putting this record out, but you know, honestly, I just don't understand it. And I said, How old are you? And I think at the time he was like 50-something. I said, I don't make music for 50-year-olds. You got a son? Play it for him. It's the first thing I said to him. And he was so pissed. And they, him and Jim Johnson are the reason Neurotica ended up, why the whole thing went south. They did everything they could to sabotage that whole, uh, the whole cycle of promotion. I mean, they spent a half a million dollars on Neurotica. They ran full-page ads and, you know, Mad Magazine for fuck's sake. I mean, it's really, you know, and... They, they 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 were like okay so we're gonna send you over to after we after we got through that meeting and the records back on and we're in New York and they're like okay we're gonna go uh, talk to Evolution Talent and they have like NSYNC and Britney Spears and all these big people so we go sit at their big boardroom table and they're like oh man it's really exciting you know what's happening with the the new label and, and blah 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 and um, so we thought we'd put you guys out on tour with Fozzie <laughs> yes. I was like. No, 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 no. Like, we're not a wrestling band. We are not 
you, you have to separate church and state with this fucking thing, man. Like, you have 10 hours of television. You know, I told Vince this as well. It's like, you don't need MTV. You don't need anything. You have this perfect business model. 10 hours of television. You can promote our record on any one of those hours more than MTV would ever, and it will cost you nothing. This is a perfect setup. And, uh, you know, it was just, that's how it was at the time. There was, wrestling was huge, massive, and, and they had all this shit going on. And then, and, and, you know, WrestleMania, we did King of the Ring, or we uh, King of the Ring songs. Like, yeah, if I had all the tools are there, it's all there. Why would you, and also Drowning Tool at the time, had when, when they had the song Let the Bodies to the Floor, they, they used that. They sold 250,000 copies of that record. Vince got zero dollars. I said, why would you take fans you know, and, and promote their music. You don't get any of it now. You have your own label, and you'll make you'll make the money when you when you when you showcase one of their songs for one of the wrestlers, and then all of a sudden they sell 200,000 copies. Back when people bought records, um, you know, then you'll you'll make all the money. So anyway, you know, we we uh, got it with Evolution Talent, and and they tried with the Fozzie thing, and they were like, well, "What do you want to do?" I said, "Offset." I said, we need to pretend, we're already on this huge, with this huge company that's going to get a ton of press, this new venture. We need to be on that stuff and we need to pretend like we've been around for a while and you just didn't know it. Just, you know, put us out there and we'll deliver. And they did and, uh, and the rest was history. We did really well on that tour and everything went great. And actually, in the end, it, it cost $75,000 to be on that tour as a result of my big mouth. The WWE that year sponsored Ozfest and we got to do the tour for no money. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't have to pay for it, so yeah. we saved seventy five thousand dollars because you had to pay that much just to get on the tour, and then it's another eighty probably with bus and and you know crew and and all that shit for for two and a half months. So you know, you're talking about one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and we saved you know half of that uh, just by getting them involved. And um, so in the end, squeaky wheel gets the grease, man. And, and um, you know, in closing, it's it's important for young musicians to stand up for yourself, man, no matter who it is. You know what I mean? Uh, Vince McMahon appreciated the fact that, you know, I think dude, I just came at him like he would come at somebody and just put things in very, you know, basic terms. And I wasn't wrong. You know, I, I certainly wasn't wrong. But, uh, yeah, not a fan of Jim Johnson. And as a matter of fact, I I, uh, I wrote something. I saw where he had lost his job I, there, and I wrote something on a... Um, on a, a WWE message board about it, <laughs> and somebody had uh, somebody took offense to it. But he didn't seem like a likable guy to me. You know, didn't didn't seem like a uh, a guy that uh, that really deserved to be where he was. He, he was milking tons of money out of that company that Vince didn't even know anything about. And so in the end, the whole thing fell. And we were when we finished Ozfest, Linda McMahon called me on the phone, and uh, I'll never forget. I was on the tour bus. She's like, "We just don't, well, we just don't know what we're doing." This is a mess, and uh, we're just going to give you a record back and call it a day. So that alone oh. lets you know how much they didn't know about the record because they bought a piece of that record, and they could have kept it for 30 years, but they gave it back after spending all that money. So I don't know. If I'm a shareholder in the WWE, I got some questions about how they do business, how they spend money. You know, they spend a lot of money, waste XFL, $34 million, uh, you know. Well, it's a shame what happened to the XFL this year with the, you know, with the whole virus thing because I was kind of digging the way they were doing it now, it was a little more, it was better because, you know, again, they tried to put wrestling commentators in the football back and most of the people listening probably won't remember that, but it's been 20 years now almost, so, but they, you know, had these wrestling people calling the football games and it was very odd and it didn't work, but Jim, Jim Ross is not a football announcer. He's not a football play-by-play guy, that's for sure, yeah. But it was, it was great to see him kind of uh, say our name on television and uh, you know, because I'm an old school wrestling fan from Florida, you know, and um, Dusty Rhodes and Harley Race and all these guys used to come you know, when I was a kid, and, and so it was just uh, it was cool to see uh, 
yeah. You know, and it could have been a great thing, man. It would have been an incredible business venture if they would have just done it, you know, separated and kept the right people involved. And, um, but again, it was an incredible experience and, uh, one that was way outside of, uh, extreme metal, you know, my, in my death metal days, you know, I've got, you know, dealing with radio, rock radio and stuff like that. I mean, we had a song on 85 stations across the country called Easy Speak in, uh, in 1998. And that was, that was the closest, you know, that I ever got to sort of having a sort of a hit song. But that's a weird business, man. It's weird trying to get on the radio. That's way different than extreme metal and stuff. That's just not even a, a branch on the tree that anybody sits on. No, but no. in radio, it's everything. I mean, in, uh, in rock music, it's everything. Gotta get on the radio. Gotta get on the radio. Ugh, no thanks. That's a crazy story, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it, man. I, I, um, I got to get in. We're having Mother's Day dinner tonight, so I've got to get in before my wife divorces me. So, uh, thanks oh. for having me, man. I appreciate it. And I hope I didn't talk too much. No, dude, it's do. great. You know, learned a lot of stuff tonight. Coming up, man. We're get, we got a European tour plan. I should be promoting that fucking thing. Uh, we're, you know, it, it, maybe it won't, maybe it won't happen. But uh, right now, September first, mm-hmm. looking like it starts in Germany. And it uh, goes all throughout Eastern Europe, and um, so we're looking forward to getting back out. And we just, you know, I can't say enough about the new guys, and um, you know, just really, really incredible musicians. Check out some of the more recent stuff on YouTube with Atheist, and you'll see the guys. And uh, a bass player that's just going to blow everybody's mind, man. It's going to be really, really incredible. And Tony Choi came out to see him play when we were on a tour. He was, you know, everybody's just really impressed with him. And um, so I think that. You know, for anybody that's, that was missing the base sort of elements on Jupiter, we'll be pleased with uh, you know this new incarnation of of where we're heading. Uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We got a ton of stuff written already and ready to go. We just got to get past this virus and and uh, you know get out and, and, and you know getting out on the road together is gonna help us be even you know have more chemistry to, to get the record done. And uh, so it's gonna be a good year in the next twelve months. We'll have a, we'll have a lot of good news coming from this camp for sure. So, it's good to hear, man. So we'll uh, hoping to get out, uh, you know, in the early part uh, in America. Guess when we come through again, holler at me and I'll put you on the list and we'll hang out. Awesome, that, that'd yes. be great. Yeah, I mean, the- all right, you guys have a wonderful night. Appreciate it, man. We'll be in touch, brother. All right, man. Cheers. Okay, that was our interview with Kelly Schaefer of Atheist. Um, wow, you know, you guys heard he had uh, he had some plans. We didn't want to uh, we didn't want to take any more of his time and ask him to recommend all that stuff. Um, the guy said he had some family things going on. So um, Kelly Schaefer from Atheist, man, amazing story. Um, and even his his music industry ventures outside of extreme metal that was pretty interesting too. <laughs> yeah, close to yeah, home. For sure. Close to home. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, man. Uh, I just to meet Slash too, man. That must have been pretty sick, man. Slash sounds like a cool guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll try to get him on the next Buckshot facelift. We'll see how that works out. He and Sal might get along. You never know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, Slash, check your email, man. Heavy Hole Podcast. We've been reaching out. Holler at me, Slash. <laughs> um, but listen, what I really want to know is what you guys got under your top hats. Uh, do we have recommendations tonight? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, shit. we do. Everybody's prepared. Everybody did their homework. Yeah. I love it. I That's got right. my special recommendation. Uh, why don't you guys yeah. take it in the squared circle and, and lock up and see who goes first? 
Uh, hey, Tom, sportsmanlike, uh, you mind if I go first? <laughs> My favorite sport is cricket, so yes, you may go first. Nothing but honor Yes, in that sport. Yes, there and patience go. and tea time. Nothing but crickets over here for this banter. Come on, guys. Um, so um, I'm bringing a recommendation in from 1993. We got this band Misdeed from Estonia and their only full-length Diabolism. So what we're looking at here is some super tight, primal, not overdone technical metal. Um, it's a very solid album showing the threads of, uh, or at least or how, how far reaching the threads of Florida metal was in the early 90s, reaching all the way to Estonia. Uh, very, very short-lived band. Um, they did not tour much uh, outside, you know, just playing local. Kind of had this uh, this this morbid angel meets pestilence kind of vibe going on. Um, really, really good roots technical metal. You know, as 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 we've talked about, you know, a bunch on the podcast. Uh, if you're into any of those bands, definitely check this out. Um, they, I think, their biggest claim to fame live-wise, they played the uh, Lithuanian Metal Fest in the summer of '94. And and man, yeah, just. It's a shame that that this band didn't put out much um, after after this. Yeah, it's a shame yeah. that I missed the Lithuanian Metal Fest in '94. I'm sorry, <laughs> I wish I could have been there. Totally. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there's there seems to be this uh, this small handful of Estonian um, metal bands that that were pretty tight. Uh, this band Misdeed, uh, like I said, they played this 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 one big show, released this record, Diabolism. And then started having some uh, creative differences between the members of the band. Um, they put out one single in 1995 called Isolation, which is a, a weird, atmospheric, kind of loose, Pantera-ish rock with not-so-good clean singing and random screaming into a megaphone. And uh, I guess it's not surprising that the band kind of called it quits uh, as soon as that single was released. Um hard to find information uh you can get get their album on youtube uh and that's misdeed diabolism from 1993 uh check it out for all, all your fans of that florida boys stuff choice cut uh just and you, you mentioned pestilence definitely in that vibe if you like the raw but uh like you know primitive technical uh death metal you know re- really like choice songwriting musicianship this is a, a top quality cut uh, a few episodes ago, you brought in Misery from Australia. Mm. Uh, this is like of the same caliber, classic, old school cut right there. Absolutely. Uh, mis- misdeed, Misery. I feel like you've been scanning Metallum or something right there. You're right in that mist section. Or is, am I wrong? Yeah, totally wrong. Uh, this is just... Uh, yeah, this <laughs> is... <laughs> I go to Metallum after Metallum afterwards for my references, but uh, I'll be searching these new bands on Bandcamp and uh, and kind of working my way backwards. Sometimes they, they throw some weird inspirations in there, you know. And uh, it's it's a little bit of a, a little bit of luck, you know. Sometimes with these recommendations, the frequency which we go about it, sometimes sometimes you hit and sometimes you miss. And I seem to have struck this early '90s vein of uh, obscure beginnings of technical death metal. I saw I'm riding it. I'm loving it. The gold rush out here. Dude.
Tonight I'm bringing in a new recommendation from a band called Karma Cipher. Uh, their new album, Introspectrum, uh, which was released on Infree Records, which I believe is a relatively newer label. Um, so you got to go to their band camp to find this. And I highly re recommend checking this out. Uh, Karma Cipher is a... I, I wouldn't call them a technical death metal band. I would, and, nor would I call them an atmospherical, uh, an atmospheric tech, uh, an atmospheric death metal band. Excuse me, I'm getting tongue tied. Um, I, I I would say they they kind of place themselves in a in a place of um, like fully dynamic songwriting, in which they they go from high speed, give it all to really letting the room kind of talk in a way where they there's just parts throughout the album where it just totally breaks down to almost silence but there's something happening there and then drums start coming in it few times throughout the album you find yourself going wow i've never really heard something break down this much and then pick back up with like kind of a um ulcerate kind of intensity um so so this album is a bit of a roller coaster and it's got good mood to it, so I highly recommend it. Karma Cipher's new album, Introspectrum, on Infree Records. And I really enjoyed this release. Uh, everything you said about the dynamics, it's, it's breathing constantly. You know, this, these big exhales and big inhales of, uh, and, and taking, that, yeah, taking that time, and sometimes it just slows down and totally disintegrates and then picks back up with this, this aggressiveness. Um, that is, it's unique, man. There's very few things sounding kind of like this band. Uh, you can see where their influence influences come from, which I guess would say would come from that sort of uh, dissonant metal kind of arena. Uh, they're they're putting this fresh spin on it, and really fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this was really cool stuff, man. I I really enjoyed the drum sound. Kind of unusual. Um, I thought I thought the the snare drum in particular sounded kind of unusual, but it reminded me of some of these like very busy, uh, old school like '90s uh, hardcore records. Um, things like Motive, Millhouse, mm. bands I've talked about before. There was a quality to it, maybe with some of the more um, <coughs> uh, some of the more like dissonant, uh, I guess if you want to call them that, um, guitar work and stuff. There was just a, a quality to it that was like. Uh, little bit a little bit more live and in the room than than some other extreme metal records you might hear yeah. that i really enjoyed about it yeah absolutely. that's a cool take uh, yep. i'm glad you mentioned the drums as well because their drummer wilfred ho uh he posts a few of his drum playthroughs on youtube and i highly recommend checking them out because he's a solid player and uh, he's got a lot of stamina and he hits the drums super hard very entertaining to watch this drummer go Writhing Shadows is a two-man band from Birmingham, Alabama that just put out their first uh, debut two-song promo, uh, The Devourment of God's People. Um, hey, 
you know, I guess the Bible Belt sometimes you get a little angry. You got people down there, they, they blocking your driveway or whatever happens. But this two song demo is uh, beautiful, old school death metal um, with a touch of atmosphere, um, just the right level of like rawness. Kind of, it kind of hits hits me in a very special place. Like everybody knows, there's this like flood of OSDM, so to speak, uh, and there's a lot of bands. I, I do I do filter through a lot of bands from week to week trying to find one to recommend. And this came on our radar because they've been snatched up by uh, Gore Grinder Records, I believe is the label. Sorry if I got that wrong. New label. Um, so Writhing Shadows, uh, next release, I guess, is going to be on that label. But uh, I, I caught wind of them through that, that algorithm. And uh, it's it's pure enough that it, it brings to mind your old school bolt thrower, maybe, and things of that nature. But there's also uh, just hints of this kind of... Um, distant uh i don't want to say evil but like melancholic grim atmosphere uh maybe some of the type of things uh, the vibes you get off of like your funeral doom bands but in uh in small doses uh um beautifully interwoven with this death metal i really found this two and it's a two song promo so you just get two little slices real quick i gotta recommend this man it's just my type of death metal and it stands out uh, in this saturated market that we have now for raw, old-school-inspired death metal. I'm amazed to hear myself even acknowledge that and say that, but that's where we're at nowadays. So this is a band that stands out uh, in, a, in a very um, flooded uh, area of the, of the death metal scene right now. I really enjoyed this. Looking forward to see what they do, seeing if they uh, refine their sound on the next release, if they expand on their atmospheric tendencies. We'll see. Writhing Shadows is the band. Yeah, super like a thick modern production. You know, not overdone, not overcooked. Uh, still kind of in that medium, medium rare kind of you know tenderness. Just hate some exactly a little bit of blood in the middle and and uh, full of potential. You know, in, uh, with those little atmospheric pieces they put in that little doom element. Uh, I'm with you and excited to see what they uh, what they do on this label and what the next release sounds like. Yes, sir. Yep. Writhing Shadows. Writhing Shadows, man. I enjoyed that, man. I also enjoyed our discussion with Kelly Schaefer. We thank him very much for his time. We also uh, appreciate all of you out there. Uh, and if you want to give us some feedback, let us know what's going on. We got the heavyholepodcast.com. Uh, all right, Will, we got- I'm going to be honest with you. You could do a lot better with, with appreciating our listeners. And by that, I mean us collectively. It's only uh, so many hours in the day, man. What are you trying to get me to do? What, what are we missing? What, what I'm missing? saying right now is that I want to give you some Patreon shout-outs. Oh, why oh. didn't you say so, man? Nice. Yeah, I know where my, where my bread's butted. Listen, yeah. anything up for this velvet Patreon, rope right here. It's... What, are, what do they want, man? What, what do we got to do for these people now? Hey, this is a, a big old thank you. I'm just going to read off the names of all of our, our lovely listeners who are on the Patreon, patreon.com slash heavyholepodcast. Like a thanks list on an old photocopied cassette. Yes. 
Right. Oh, now I get the the concept. <laughs> I, I didn't understand it first. Okay. Right. So a Special big thank you to Aaron Eagerman, Adam Moore, Alexander Joseph, Anders Grandstorm, Andy Sung, Bass Jerk, Ben Somer, Brady Cornett, Brian Hunt, Yo. Clemens Make, Clint Weathers, Cody Hager, yep. Damian A. Martinez, David Gladding, Evan Mester, G. Chow, Hank Schlemmer, hey. friend of the show. Hank. Oh, there he is. Ian Yukin, Yunkin. Hey, man. Uh, sure, sure you can. Just James. Kent McCauley. Hey, Kent. Long-time listeners. Supporter. Kevin Penner. I don't know him, but thanks. <laughs> hey, what's up, Pen? Lord Camo Pants the Third. Now That's we're right. talking. Yeah. Can't see your pants. I'm Lord, I'm Lord Sweatpants the First. <laughs> NRM. Nick Serino. Hey. Phil Wadey from Phil's Breakfast Metal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Rob Alvarado. Oh, what's up, Raz? It's my cousin, allegedly. Yeah, good dude. Sean Newhart. Terrell from Buckshot Facelift. Terrell of Reeking Aura. Reeking Aura, yeah, I'm sorry. Let me update that. Terry Walker, Tyler Craig, and Zachary Mahoney. That's right, Mahoney. Rest in peace, Balls Mahoney. Check it out. So that's our... I in with the pro wrestling strong. Yeah, so those are all of our Patreons. Thank you guys. We really appreciate it. Funding the lavish lifestyle similar to Slash. These guys just bought me a Jaguar that we just talked about. And one more quick shout-out uh, to my homie Ian Coney's. He just started a, an interesting website you guys might want to check out. It's called Fumes of Doom. Fumesofdoom.com. Uh, he's he's a funny dude. Big fan of metal. Loves the stuff. And he, he he's taking his writing chops into what he loves. And, uh, okay. It is pretty funny. There's a video of him. I think he's doing a series of videos where he's drinking a beer in the shower and listening to a song and nodding along to it. It's a good time. Yeah, love to see it. Gotta get clean while your ears are still dirty. Safe for work, though. Don't worry. You can... it's, a, it's a bus shot. Didn't Ian uh, work for Eric for a little bit? Yes, Ian did work for Eric for a little while. He's, there you uh, go. he's very knowledgeable. <laughs> okay, so... Uh... The, any more Patreon people we gotta talk about? Anybody? No, no, that's last of the shoutouts. We gotta, we gotta add to that list, man. I'm saying so, that's on you, the listener. That's your fault. Yeah, yeah. If if people want to be on the next round of shoutouts, or even if they don't, they want to join the Patreon thing. Where do they go, Tom? Patreon.com/slash/heavyholepodcast. Okay, and, and I know if you go to heavyholepodcast.com, uh, you can go to, you can get links there to our voicemail, to our, mm-hmm. our social medias, to the email. Everything's on there that you want. Um, don't be a tough guy about it. Log on, as the kids say. That's right. Uh, and if, wrong. Yeah, you want some stickers um, to, to assort around your room as you stare at the wall day after day, wishing we could all go out to shows again. <laughs> Just <laughs> take, it, take me away with that promo code before I get depressed. That's right. Get, get the, hit it with that that promo code Chunky Riffs uh, for free shipping. Just uh, type, uh, go to AOL.com, uh, keyword heavy hole. He's lying. What is and, it? Uh, it's heavyholepodcast.com slash shop. Yeah, slash, type, slash type, there. <laughs> <laughs> dot com slash November Rain. It's hard to hold the candle. Uh, slash shop. Uh, type in the promo code Chunky Riffs. You love them. So do we. Get that free shipping on the sticker packs. And we're inching closer. Oh, we might get you some cloth soon. You might get that fucking cloth. You might get that nice uh, fitting t-shirt. In the near future, let's hope it's by fall. 
hope it is. Ooh. Scent, scented candles, bandanas. Uh, maybe we might. Kelly, Kelly Schaefer has the market cornered on the atheist logo bandanas. You can oh, buy that's those. Sick. Four do rags. We only sell four of them. <laughs> you know, we'll see. So, all right. Well, I've never put. I, I don't think I've ever. I, I don't know. Never worn a do rag. I've always wanted to. That's my confession for the night. That's a great place to end the night. <laughs> How many do rags can I fit on my head? One.